Hi, I'm Alexandra Roxo, your host of the Holy Fuck podcast. I've created this podcast because I want to explore how the mystical touches us in our everyday lives, how the sacred and profane move together like two sides of the same coin. I found that in modern spirituality, we often separate the sacred and the profane. We look at certain things as being holy and good and others as being bad. And I've actually found that the most magical part of life is finding the divinity, the healing, and the transformation in all of it. In this podcast, you can expect to hear stories from people on all sorts of walks of life. You'll hear from a doctor, a sex worker, a poet, a motivational speaker, an activist, a mother, a birth doula, and all sorts of other people who are walking on an embodied path of healing and transformation as a soul awakening this lifetime. Each one of our guests will be sharing their mystical and numinous and spiritual awakenings, how the sacred has touched their lives and the profane too how they have explored life through sex, drugs, birthing, meditation, prayer, experiencing death and life, and all sorts of different elements that God, Goddess Divine, speaks to us through. If you found that you're also a rebel mystic who doesn't just fit into the simple ideas of good and bad, of spirituality, but sees the nuance that life has to offer us, then I hope you find a home with me here in this podcast. Enjoy. Hi, everybody. So today is a special solo cast with me. You guys submitted some amazing questions. and I'm really excited to answer them and to respond to them. It made me think. Lots of thoughts. So some of you all submitted through my newsletter. Thank you. And some submitted through Instagram. Thank you. So I'm just going to kind of power through some of them. I'm going to start with the ones about love, and then we'll go into some of the other questions about work, about spiritual growth. Mm. Okay. Let's see. All right. So I'm just going to read this question from the beginning. Hello, Alexandra. First off, you're so inspiring and send great positive energy, and I thank you for that. You're teaching me to love myself and to be happy in my own skin. My question is, how do, how do I find my support group? I've always been one to do things myself, and I find it impossible to ask for help. Although I am sure I do have some friends I could reach out to, I don't have anyone to reach out to with what I'm going through right now. Because of this, it makes it so much harder and brings on more depressing thoughts, because I don't feel I have anyone to talk to while starting my journey to my more soulful self. It makes me sad when I watch movies, when these women that have those other girls that they can just be themselves with and share unconditional love. Sex in the City, for example. Some of the friends I've had in the past, I realize, realize them to be high maintenance, and that's not what I'm all about. How do I go about finding that connection with another woman and have them be my rock and for me to be able to provide that as well? What a gorgeous question. Thank you so much. Okay, this is a big one. And the thing is that I would say is that before we go outside of ourselves or look for something outside of ourselves, we have to really, really be walking that walk and deeply embodying it. In a sense, we become an attraction point for it, right? It's just like 
you know, if you have a certain look or a certain vibe about you, you'll probably meet other people or gravitate towards other people or other people will gravitate towards you because of that, right? It's like if someone is playing a particular instrument or is of a particular religious group or of a particular ethnic background, there may be a gravitational pull towards other people in that space. So if for you, it's like, oh, I'm craving depth, I'm craving soul for relationships, then what does it look like for you to embody that? How do you show up? Do you start going to events and gatherings with other people that are walking the same path? Um, that to me, it starts with you. It's like, well, I have to be in the rooms. I have to be in the spaces where there is soulful, deep um, investigation, curiosity, play, understanding. Obviously, with the pandemic, that's made it a little bit more challenging perhaps, but you can find that, um, in, in retreats and online memberships. I'll say people have come to my retreats and been in my programs and left best friends and starting businesses together. It's happened so many times I can't count. And, um, I would say that that is not, you don't have to come on one of my retreats, but going on a retreat, you will go deep with people, right? So if it's in the medicine space or the space of, of like feminine embodiment, healing and coaching, um, whether it's yoga, meditation, if you get yourself to a retreat in person with other people, you'll create a bonding experience of depth by being in the room, going through transformation together. Transformational experiences or some sort of a big experience is what creates that bond. So it's different if you just like kind of meet someone casually at a party, you say, hi, oh, maybe we'll hang out sometime. If you meet someone under the context of deep healing, of change, of passion, of mourning, of grieving, of um, repairing, you know, these are all places where there's a bond that can be formed. Whether you're planting trees in your community, whether you're starting to work um, with a houseless population around you, whatever your heart is drawn to, if you pursue that really clearly and passionately, you will find other like-minded beings or like-hearted or like-souled beings, I promise you. And there's that little window of change where you're moving from one sort of level of awareness to another, or one space to another, where you might have to walk and hold yourself for a little while. I've had many phases in my life where I have fewer people around me that can hold me and that I can hold back. And it's okay. I've learned how to hold myself with my practice, with my art, all of that. So letting the phases where you don't have your community around in person or close by you also be very strengthening for your soul, very deepening as well. All right. That one's a great one. All right. Second here, curious about making a jump without seeing a clear path. I have felt that my life in the tech world is waning, but having done it so long and been successful in it, I have trouble seeing how to make a living without that line of work. This is a great question. I think for anyone who feels like, well, an old version of me has expired, right? Like this career that I had, we live in a society that asks us to define our career, our calling, our job, our vocation really early on before we've usually explored the world, before really know ourselves. Essentially, that part of our formation or around 16 to 18 has been greatly impacted by our parents. So if you think about the 18-year-old you, um, 
likely you're either in in kind of compliance with your parents' vision or you're rebelling against it. There's usually not the most time, space, and understanding for the nuance of actually what do I want to do. I rebelled against, you know, and some people complied. Like my mom wanted me to stay in, in school in Georgia. It was a free university. And I was like, I'm going to New York City. So, I mean, for me, that was also deeply in line with my soul. But it, as someone who's young, you, it's hard to choose and to say, okay, I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. So I say that to give you permission to not be married to a career or a vocation just because you've gotten good at it. You are totally allowed, and I'm sure actually able to change, to do something different, to not make decisions simply out of fear or security. Now, that doesn't mean just quit your job and just be freewheeling for a while, but I've helped people move from one career to another. And actually, I've helped a few people leave the tech world because they didn't feel like it was a place where they could be embodied and close to their hearts. But that takes some time and space. Financially, likely, you can't just leave a job without knowing where you're going next. So with the clients, when I work with someone in this regard, it's like we need to make a, a few-year plan. Unless there's unlimited financial resources, but otherwise we need to make a plan, a transitional plan. So I would say to start working on understanding what it is you do want to do next before you jump ship and then create a plan of transition so that you have, uh, you continue to create safety, security, and keep your root network really watered and nourished. Because if we totally uproot it all, which I've done, um, it can be very destabilizing. And I wouldn't really recommend it, especially, you know, at the phase that we're at right now with the pandemic and everything. I wouldn't recommend annihilating your income before knowing that where some money will be coming in next. But spending time getting to know what you want to do Something you could do is read the book, The Artist's Way, and do that program. I love that. I've done it since I was 18. It's a really phenomenal way to sort of get in touch with your heart and soul. So um, good luck there. All right, next here. How do you let love in and trust after being hurt in relationships? Very good question. How do you let love in and trust after being hurt in relationships? Well, first you got to feel. So if you're still feeling the hurt from the past, which it sounds like, you're still feeling the sort of shutdown or the rejection or the pain or the loss, then there's a space of having to sit with that and fully feel it, right? So if you were hurt, broken up with, if you lost someone you love, actually taking the time to feel. As an artist and a writer, I've always poured that into writing because it helps me so much to heal. So um, most of that writing will never see the light of day, thank God, <laughs> because no one wants to read about all of my heartbreaks and heartaches. But it is so cathartic to sit and write out all of your feelings and the sadness and the victim story. I've written so many things from the victim. How dare you leave me? I can't believe you. And just letting that sort of Italian opera or, you know, telenovela voice of my broken heart come out. Oh my God, I love that. <laughs> 
I don't love the brokenheartedness, but being able to play in that realm. But then you got to be careful. You don't want to get stuck there. You don't want to get stuck just in that victim-y voice. You, you also have to laugh at it and go, okay, all right, honey, let's move on. Um, you can pour your grief or your heartbreak also into practice, doing embodied practice, crying, laying on the floor, breathing, moaning, groaning, expressing, dancing, singing, doing ritual. So whatever whatever you need to do to get current, right, to uh, come into where your heart is right now and not be living just in the shape of your past pain. That takes practice, and it's usually not like, oh, it's a finished project. It's an ongoing, like, massaging that happens on the heart. Um, and then from then, from that place, it's it's coming into the wisdom of discernment. Um, and in the, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, and with one of the teachers I've studied, um, there are these different sort of poisons that... The, that uh, you would call them poisons in that tradition. One of them is craving, and the the, the sh- so it's kind of like the shadow, and then like the 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 exalted side. The exalted side of the craving is the wisdom of discernment. So no longer are you just like hungry for love, hungry for anything that's going to come your way. You're discerning. And so in this phase of healing around your heart so that you can let love in again, softening the heart, opening the heart, practicing with the heart, then it's discerning what kind of love actually comes in, right? So that part of the process can be equally as challenging, right? Someone may come into your life, oh my God, oh my God, it's it, it's the person, and it's actually craving that's speaking, because when you tap into the depth of your heart and you discern, is this really a full yes for me? The craving will say it's a yes. The craving is like, oh yeah, it's a yes. <laughs> so we have to learn to discern these different voices inside of ourselves. You could call them aspects of psyche or soul. You could call them pers- personas. You could call them, you know, different um, parts. So it all depends what lens you look at it, but it's identifying who's speaking in a way. So, you know, when I see all this stuff online, like, is it a yes or is it a no? Well, it may be a yes to your craving, but it may be a no to your deeper essence and learning to feel the difference there. That takes time and skill. So when people say, oh, it's a yes or a no, it's like, it's not, it could be a no to your protector self, but it could be a yes to a part of you that's expanding and willing to take a new risk. So there's more nuance in the way that we begin to understand ourselves. So uh, to let love in, it's leaning into the nuance of like, is this the type of love that is nourishing, that is healthy, that is supportive to me? Is it giving me a learning opportunity? And again, there takes that takes a soft front body, not too soft where you're leaky and you're all over the place, but it takes an opening and it takes pulling down the armor. So that's definitely a journey to do that. And it's taken me many years as a continuous journey. It's like I said, it's not just like, oh, it's over now. But that was a great question. Okay. How do I reconcile my inner growth with the outer world that remains the same? I'm in your radical awakenings group and I'm so inspired with the creatrix archetype, all of them so far, really. 
I've learned so much in a short time. I know it's a process to keep chipping away at constantly learning and listening, but I'm no longer suited by old norms and social contracts that I once accepted. I want to yell at everyone, very triggered and feeling raw. Also not ready to quit my job or change my whole reality, but I feel like I'm in some sort of a purgatory. Please help. Ah, I feel you. I feel you. So this liminal space, liminal, it's like the bardo in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, just to mention that one again. But it's also a purgatory, which you said, which is more of like a Christian and Catholic term. The liminal, right? So the liminal is highly uncomfortable. It's like being in the cocoon. So the process, if you go on YouTube and you watch a, a you know caterpillar who's turning into a butterfly, first it actually has to turn into mush, mush in the sack. It's kind of kind of wild before it reforms itself. And then can you imagine it becomes reformed somehow, and then it has wings and it somehow just knows how to fly. But that very strange process of weaving its own cocoon and then kind of mushing inside of it and then coming out again. I mean, nature is so psychedelic, insane, wild, magical. Like, it is magic. You know, I don't know why humans are so obsessed with anything else because the magic is right here all the time. <laughs> like, that's pretty magical. Um, having this little funky little furry guy who then sprouts wings and flies and is like the most gorgeous thing ever. Um, so being in the liminal space is uncomfortable and that, that you got to learn how to deal and sit with discomfort without yelling and being mean to others <laughs> without blaming others. So it sounds like you're handling that and I'm glad, and you're acknowledging that you want to yell at others and you want to just be like, what the fuck world? Because of course, as you're kind of waking up, your awareness is expanding more of the unconscious tendencies are coming into light because of all of the spiritual work you're doing. That's awesome, right? It's like, to give like a really silly example, it's like if I was a gal who was always smiling and I just was always smiling, da, 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 just like, ah. and then one day I realized, oh my God, I've always smiling. I never changed my face shape and expression then an unconscious tendency has now come to light. So for a while, I'm going to be hyper-focused on like, oh my God, am I smiling? Am I smiling? Am I smiling? Because all of a sudden, this thing that was unconscious is now conscious, and so I'm going to be super focused on it. You can see this all over the sort of like online social media, like people that wake up to one thing about themselves or about you know their spiritual path or growth, and then it's just like, so hyper-focused on it, right? Whether it's boundaries, whether it's mental health, whether it's inner child work, whether it's whatever, like, you know, there can be this hyper-focus. Part of that makes total sense because we're bringing something into the light and we're bringing it into the center and then we're looking at it. What it sounds like for you is like you've brought some things in and now you want to be like, fuck you, which is a really, really healthy response. And I, I say, feel your fuck yous deeply, feel your anger deeply at being a part of a system that is sick, right? Like the political system, the police system, the medical system, like be angry, allow yourself. But 
blaming others, especially outwardly, publicly, when you're in that place is probably not going to be the most productive space for you. So, but allowing in your personal practice at home, however you do to get angry about it, to be mad, to be mad. I mean, to let yourself look at the numbers around, you know, cancer, rape, abuse, sex trafficking, suicide, you know, to actually look at those numbers and go, what the fuck world or whatever it is that's upsetting you. That's actually very important. Don't skip that part of the process. Anybody here, anybody. It's just like in my podcast with Alex Ebert, when he was like, I don't want to be smiling because smiling meant that I had adapted to a sick world. Now there's two sides to the coin. The world has just as much beauty as it does chaos and sickness, but we have the ability to definitely remedy a lot of the chaos. And so that is why I'm not going to stay smiling about it all. Right? So the fact that you're like, about whatever it is, is super, super healthy, super healthy. What changes you make next in your behavior and the way you eat, the way you talk, the way you walk, the way you make love, the way you intake different substances, the way you pray, the way you interact with your family, that is all going to be works in progress. You may find that some of those things were full of unconscious tendencies and now it just doesn't work to do it. It feels off in your body. It feels yucky. So, you know, you said that your inner world is changing. Well, your outer world is only going to change if you, if you pay, if you do it, (laughs) right? Like no one's going to make your bed, but you, (laughs) unless you pay someone. So if you want your outer world to shift, like how are you embodying the change, right? You can have change in thought, right? Awareness, but that doesn't mean you've embodied the change. So sure, you have change in awareness. You're waking up in your awareness, in your mind. But how do you pull that into body and into action? Just because you've had a shift in awareness doesn't mean you're this amazing spiritual person now. It's like, how do we embody the change and then pay it for it in action? This is, is, is such a beautiful thing. Because when we have realizations, how do we pay them forward? When we have the capacity to heal, we have the time, the space, the money, the privilege, whatever. How do we pay them forward? It's a very important question for all of us living on the planet right now. We're not, we can't hoard wisdom and awareness. We also can't push it on people, but can we embody those shifts, whether it's simple embodied compassion? What does that look like in the grocery store? What does that look like? Sharing, donating money, cleaning up your neighborhood. Like I think I might've mentioned when my best friend started a neighborhood potluck for all the different people in her neighborhood, including the house's population, including the people that sat and drank in the park, including her, you know, affluent white neighbors. She created a potluck and she said, we all need to sit and eat together. White people, you can't just drop off food. You have to interact. We have to get to know each other. We have to connect. We are creating community and it goes beyond addiction, 
home, race, etc. That's inspired and embodied action. So you can be a spiritual person who's like, oh, compassion. I'm compassionate, generous. I'm generous. But how are you paying it forward? And this is continues. It's different for everyone. I mean, my friend is extraordinary and she's also super, like her whole life is around justice and um, really creating space for everyone to come together like that. So what is it for you? What does it mean that you have these awakenings or insights in our, in our new moon rituals, in our community? How are you embodying them? And yeah, be pissed about it for a while. Yeah, be grumpy about it. Maybe the shifts are small. That's okay. Maybe that you start recycling or composting. That's okay. But paying it forward, letting it move through your hands, feet, voice, song, dance, heart, loving. Right? Great question. Thank you. I hope that helped. I like how you wrote, please help in all caps. <laughs> and anyone whose questions I'm answering, please report back with status updates for us. Okay, next one. I've always admit, admired, I've always admired how in your body you seem to be. Do you have any advice on tips on how to connect with your body? After disordered eating and sexual assault, I have had such a hard time with it. I would love to know where to start. Oh, I so feel your heart, my love, and what a great question. I go into depth in my book about this because my book is essentially actually deeply about this. It's like, how do we get into our body after those things? And after also that the, that the world has told us the world being like the overculture has told us that our cute little jiggly thighs are, are not cute. And that our, you know, little dimply bums are not cute. And then our like, you know, soft Buddha belly stomachs are not, not cute. Like, how do we, how do we heal from all of the programming from the external that then became internal criticism that also became actually external actions against oneself. Um, how do we heal there? And honestly, pick up my book because there's so much in there. There's so many ideas and rituals and start by doing embodied practices, whether it's with me or someone else out there who really works on the way that I talk about embodiment personally is how we inhabit ourselves, how we bring our soul into the flesh, how our spirit comes through our sensation, our movement, our action, how we actually unpick the weave around the difference of thought, sensation, emotion, body movement, body habit. So to be free in one's body, we have to understand all the difference of those aspects of body, right? Physical sensation, emotion, how emotion lives in the body, movement, how thought lives in the body, how thought creates reaction in the body. So for, I recommend reading my book and I would recommend also, um, 
there's so many other people who talk about how to heal trauma in the body. There's the somatic experiencing work by Peter Levine, um, Kimberly Ann Johnson's book, Call of the Wild. She's another great one. I learned so much from her. Um, who else do I love in that regard? There's polyvagal theory, Stephen Porges, um, which is all about the vagus nerve and how to work with um, essentially uh, co-regulation and regulating one's nervous system. So you can approach from the scientific, you can approach from the artistic, the creative. And honestly, I like to look at all of that stuff. So my book is trauma-informed. It does talk about the nervous system to a, to a certain extent. It's not within the whole scope of the book. It also talks about working with storytelling. It uh, talks about working with just feeling practice, breathing, dancing, expression. So pick up some of those books and just know that I've been on like a a long journey, you know, and I'm still on the journey about around liberating myself in my body. It's really been a journey. It still is. I still go into fear patterns in certain moments where my body contracts and I lose touch with my embodiment. And that's partially why I'm so passionate about this because yes, there were years where I didn't listen to my body. I tried to control it. Um, I also, um, yeah, I went through different sexual assaults. That still impacts me, just so you know. Like, I have moments with my partner where I'm like, I don't want to be alone in this weird place <laughs> because I get scared. Um, I get scared. And it's just, uh, you know, PTSD from, um, if I can call it that. And, and I think it is to a certain extent where, where as a woman, if your boundaries have been violated physically a certain number of times, then when you go into any... Uh, environment that could feel could could create that level of unsafety or violation and that your body starts to become a bit hyper vigilant so that does happen to me you know um in, in march uh, i was with my partner and his family in the golden gate park in san francisco and um, a coyote came and my partner's sister's dog ran off the leash and they all three of them my partner, his sister, and his sister's uh, kid, who was 16, they all ran after the dog and the coyote. And it was pitch black in Golden Gate Park. And I really didn't. I'd never been to that park before. But I knew that, like, there was, like, a few men, like, who, who were just kind of chilling, drinking, hanging by themselves. And I knew that there was a chance I could go into a deep panic state because I couldn't see my partner where he went or, and his, you know, his family. So what I did was I called my friend Moon because I knew if I can co-regulate my nervous system before it escalates into full panic, then I may not have to go through that experience. So it's not in that moment, I had the clarity of mind to do that. And, you know, it's not about rational or irrational. Like, sure, like 99% no one was going to attack me or assault me, but it doesn't matter. My nervous system goes into the response of this could be life-threatening or this could be really traumatic, right? It only takes someone coming up, grabbing your body, flashing you. This all has happened to me many times. So I'm like, I don't want it to happen again. <laughs> that fucking sucks. 
So I called my friend Moon and I said, can you just be on the phone with me? I'm trying to help my nervous system not escalate. I don't think I'm in danger right now. Um, I know that my partner's coming back, but I can see that I I could go into panic. And, you know, I talked to her for probably 30 seconds and he came back. And I hadn't gone into a full panic. I hadn't gone into panic. She helped me co-regulate, ground to my body. And, you know, like some of that may never go away. You know, it just may never go away. I've been flashed. I've been grabbed. I've been in the bathroom and someone's come in and like pulled up my shirt. You know, like I've woken up in a bedroom at my friend's house with someone on top of me in the middle of the night. This actually happened to me three times in my life. So yeah, like I'm, I, 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 I do, um, become hypervigilant if I'm sleeping in a place that I don't know that's new. If I feel like I don't have a good lock on the door, um, if I feel like I can't get support. So all of this is, uh, I just consider to be something to learn to work with. I wonder, will it ever go away? Um, and I'm like, I don't know if it'll ever go away. I've done a lot of different plant medicines. I've done a lot of therapy. I don't know if it'll ever go away. I'm not giving up on it. You know, I'm going to do some more somatic work around these things. And I know that if I co-regulate and if I do certain things, then I can stay in my body. And so I learn what those pathways are to stay in my body. And then I'm really diligent about them, you know, and also know that not everyone understands them. You know, a lot of my friends haven't gone through those things. My partner hasn't gone through those things. So he may be like, wait, it's fine. You're, you're totally safe there. But not understand that it's not about a, being a rational thing or, any, or not. It's just about a, a, a nervous system response that happens beyond the rational mind. So the journey after disordered eating and after sexual assaults, it's just so, it's a, it's a long-term journey, but I'm definitely proof that you can still have fun in your body, love your body, feel at home in your body. I know many, many women have done the healing. Um, and you know, there's a grieving, there's learning how to feel again, There's learning how to just be in the body around other women. And then if you're in a heterosexual um, type of relationship around a man, um, or or if you're in queer relationships around whatever type of partner you choose, um, and, and some situations may be more triggering than others, and you just start to learn that, you know, like, I don't walk down dark streets alone by myself, you know, like, I just don't. Or I'll carry mace or something, and I'm not. Um, I'm not ashamed of that. Like I'm not ashamed. Like that's that's what I need in order to feel safe. Um, it's not rare that women go through stuff like this. My friend Ruby Warrington shared in her in her beautiful newsletter about how we were both flashed together. Um, not only flashed, I, the guy who started masturbating beside us in, in, in Venice, in California, and how um, I tried to shrug it off because I just like didn't have space to be traumatized again. <laughs> but it was total denial. <laughs> and, um, and it was traumatizing to both of us and completely uh, destabilizing. And so 
she's in her 40s and I'm in my late 30s. And it's like, it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter how much money you have. Like these things happen. And um, obviously not living from fear every day, but also creating safety. It's essential. We have to feel safe in order to be embodied. So what does that look like for you? You know, um, it's different for all of us. Sending you so much love on that journey. And I'm here and my book has so much about that. So, and so many other great books about healing trauma through embodiment. So many good ones. Wishing you so much luck on your journey there. Maybe luck's the wrong wrong word. (laughs) Wishing you bravery, courage, tenacity, laughter, all of that. Okay, we're going to take a quickie little break, and then I'm going to come back with the questions that I received from Instagram. So if you haven't heard yours, stay tuned. And the next ones are way more about relationships, actually. Hello, quick interlude here. I hope you're enjoying this podcast. If you are, I'd love for you to check out my book, Fuck Like a Goddess, my guide to healing yourself, reclaiming your voice, and standing in your power. Publishers Weekly called it a sharp, forceful debut. It was one of Bustle's best summer reads and a bestseller in three categories on Amazon. These are my methods that I'm teaching to inspire you, challenge you, bring up your resistance so you can face it and get free and unleash your gifts. How to let life make love to you, enjoy every bit, and find the magic in all of it guide. You can find it at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, IndieBound, and Sounds True, or by visiting alexandraroxo.com book. Thank you so much. It means the world to me to have your support for my work. Back to the podcast. All right. Got a bunch of them. So I'm going to do a little bit of a speed round so that I can try to get them in. Someone asked, will humans... Well, I'll try to see you guys as, I don't know if I didn't say that I would say your handles. So next one, I'll I'll say like, Hey, let me know if you want to be anonymous or not. Someone asks, will humans always have an endless desire for a new romantic partner? I have no idea, but I did watch a show called a brave new world recently based on the Huxley book, a brave new world. And, um, that was an interesting lens at the future where people like didn't have one partner and monogamy didn't exist anymore. Monogamy was super taboo. So I don't know if we'll always have the desire. Biology has programmed us to procreate, but if we don't need to procreate anymore, that, that sort of, it could no longer be a part of, um, the way that we love and mate. I think we still do though. I think that biology is, otherwise people wouldn't be having babies. (laughs) Um, Someone else asked, I've heard that love and money are energetically connected. Does that resonate with you? So I think that what's connected is the ability to receive. So um, money is an expression of an energetic form of abundance. And so is love. So if you kind of take take the veil off money. When you give your time, your energy, your creativity to something, essentially you're giving your essence to something and money comes back, right? So when you give your essence to a relationship, love comes back. So the process of giving and receiving in both of those regards, if you take back the word money or love, it's not very, very much, uh, very different. 
But we obviously can have very specific inherited beliefs around money. So you grew up in a, a house where you were living in poverty in order to sort of transcend the story of your family and the limiting circumstances and conditions of your family. That's going to be a particular part of your soul's journey. Maybe you had that with love. You had a scarcity of love. And so to receive the abundance of love that you, you feel that you deserve as a, as a human, that that may be a huge part of your soul's journey. A lot of us have both of those coming from generations from the 1930s, 40s, 50s, depression era, where love may have been withheld, where uh, money may have been scarce. Love may have not been withheld because people were bad, because they were working hard, taking care of multiple children, because perhaps they came from traumatic backgrounds, fathers who had served in the war, mothers who had been repressed, mothers who hadn't um, expressed themselves sexually, emotionally, creatively. So then there could potentially be alcoholism or depression. Um, so all of those trickle down then creates a scarcity potentially around love. Then you think of that around money, parents coming from the depression, uh, immigrants, uh, part, potentially being in a part, uh, uh, an ethnic background that is oppressed. Like, so the scarcity inherited around love and money, they can be really tantamount. So the healing and also can exist in the same way of opening our capacity to receive and healing our relationship to the old stories. So there's, there's like a multi-tiered um, way that we can move through the obstacles with love and money. You can ask a million people the same question and they will give you all the formulas. So, you know, take it, take it or leave it. But for me, healing and understanding the past, what I, my soul stepped into in my family's lineage, right? What I stepped into willingly because there were lessons for me there. So understanding, oh, okay, so my father didn't get the love he wanted, so he didn't give me the love he wanted, and his mother didn't get the love she wanted. They just all beat each other, and a lot of them molested each other. It's like, well, shit, of course, I'm not going to get the love I wanted from that long line of dysfunction, right? It's not like the beautiful, you know, exalted, healthy, robust love, however... I can be the one, the soul who stepped into that willingly and goes, okay, well, this is the challenge for me. I'm going to learn how to alchemize this into love and feeling love and forgiveness and acceptance and deeply opening my heart. Even though I could be like, fuck all you guys. Why all so dysfunctional? <laughs> right? But... This isn't personal. Like, I mean, most families have de are dealing with, with parents that have alcoholism, addiction, withholding love, smothering love, um, you know, depression, anxiety. This is, this is just the, the process that we're at in the kind of awakening to consciousness in our world and patriarchy and capitalism and all of this. So it's not... I think it would be very rare to meet someone who hadn't experienced any childhood trauma, who got the perfect amount of love. You know, I have friends that, I mean, that grew up in really loving families and they still have all kinds of obstacles, right? 
it's just not black or white. It's so, so nuanced how we experience, but to, to receive love or to receive money, first, we got to pick through the conditioning, the circumstances, the victimhood, the identifying with those past stories. And then we, we strengthen our capacity to receive and to open to receiving. And so I do feel like the money and the love channels are very similar. However, my money channel reopened outside of the scarcity mindset before my love channel did. And I know quite a few women who also are like, okay, great. Like I learned how to heal with money. I opened, I got out of my family's whole poverty mentality and now I'm making good money doing what I love, but wait, where's the love? So it's the same concept of working through whatever exists in the lineage and that you've stepped into as your soul's kind of curriculum, like the textbook you've been given, working through that, sorting through that, becoming curious, understanding, and then moving into the present in your body, seeing how that lives in your body, right? How does, you know, your father's ignoring you or, you know, your mother's saying like, oh, you're, you're never good enough. You're always too fat. Like, how does that live in the here and now? Don't get stuck in that past stuff, but we do need to understand it to an extent. We need to own our stories in order to release our stories. When people are like, oh, I don't need to know any, I don't need to ever talk about that. I'm like, okay, I don't agree. I do believe we need to own our stories in order to release them and rewrite them. But we rewrite them first off in the present. We don't rewrite them by saying, I receive so much money now. I am abundant. Great. But how is that really working in your embodied experience in the here and now? You have to strengthen your capacity to receive in your nervous system. So again, that's why embodiment is so important. All right. All right. All right. All right. All right. Transforming the father wound. Jeez, you guys are asking me some deep questions. <laughs> Transforming the father wound, learning how to relate to the masculine differently. Gosh, this is also a real, real um, big one. Again, you can read all about this in my book. So I am going to just say, read that in my book. My, me and my dad's story is freaking epic. It was deep trauma and discomfort and abuse and turned into love and forgiveness. It's the biggest miracle I've ever experienced in my life. Um, and I don't, I don't know how it happened, except I did sit in a lot of discomfort for many years. And I did about 20 years of healing. Um, 20? Maybe like 18 years. When I was 18, I was like, okay, this father wound is going to get me. I picked up my Doreen Virtue affirmation at age 18 and I said, I forgive you, Father. And I thought that was it. Ah, 18 years of deep healing, therapy, plant medicine, attracting my father and every man, even my partner now, so much like my father, but I love my father now. So he has some of the like great qualities of my father. Um, so read that in my book. There's so much around, around men. It's in the chapter, how to love like a goddess. Um, Someone says, when you know certain healing growth has to be done alone, then do it, my love. Have the courage to do it. I know you can do it. (laughs) So someone else says, your partner is not there yet and you love each other. And I think she means not there yet, like not there yet spiritually, but you love each other or not there yet in their own healing or growth journey. 
Um, it can be quite difficult to be in a relationship with someone who isn't actually identifying their own patterns and behaviors. Uh, it can feel like, wait a minute, I'm doing all this work to see where I'm bossy, where I'm controlling, where I play the victim, where I shut down to love, but then you're not taking any responsibility for yourself. I'm sure it's possible to lead by example, but I have seen a lot of women and a lot of clients when they start really identifying these things and their partner's unwilling to, I've seen the relationship end. I'm not saying that that's your your karma, your future. Um, but it can be very difficult for one person to be like, okay, I'm willing to face now the fact that I am ABC or that I do ABC and them to not do it. So I do think that sometimes I'm not sure if you're in a heterosexual relationship or not, but I do think that sometimes we women are more apt to do the work and to do it more quickly and to be vocal about it. And I think that we can't expect that, um, that men do it in the same way as us. So that feels like a big, big point is like, just because you may be doing it in this like really clear, like linear, um, expressed way, like, Hey babe, guess what? Okay. I'm still ready to work, work on the fact that I overthink all our problems. Like I'm ready to feel it. I'm ready to express it. I'm ready to stay in my heart. And he may be like, great. Um, and you may be expecting that he does it the same way you're doing it, but he may be doing it in a different way. The fact is just, I think that he's doing it, right? And and you would know the difference because he would be actually making changes and adjustments in his behavior, the way he um, relates to you. So if he's not, and he's just kind of like, you're continuing to expand and he's just kind of like, meh, that's a different story. And I think it's like really, really discerning and also allowing for the space that they're not always going to be the same timeline as us whatever type of partner you're with. You may be a little bit more advanced on the timeline of your own healing and awakening. And it's not fair to also go, yo, why aren't you right where I am? Like there's going to be moments where you're ahead or where they're ahead. And you're like, oh, I'm focused right now on building my business. I can't really think about like the fact that I like overthink or that I'm controlling or, you know, that I avoid conflict, you know, because I'm working on this. But then, excuse me, a few months later, you might be like, okay, great, now I'm in. So it's also acknowledging like, okay, is the partner not doing it for years? <laughs> or are they kind of just, you know, a little bit slower in the process and that that's okay, right? So comparing and expecting someone to be on the same exact timeline with you, um, it's just not, it's not feasible, but also acknowledging just that is there a, a commitment for growth, right? Are two people in their relationship both like, okay, we're, we're both in it for growth, for healing, for showing up all in. And if one person's like, Meh, then of course that would be something to deeply consider. Yeah. All right. Um, what's up with the unavailable man wound? Someone asks, even when I don't think I've chosen it, I have. Well, there's probably still healing there for you. So don't just run from it, but be with it and see what's there for you. Unavailable man also is not like across the board. Well, maybe if someone is, is married, they're unavailable, but people can be unavailable in moments, 
but not unavailable on the whole. Also, you may meet someone and their presenting persona may be sort of unavailable, but your inner knowing might be like, oh, but there's actually something else here. You may get meet the part of them that is available, right? So it's not so black and white unless someone is, say, married or they live in China. But even then, even if they live in China, you may be like, oh, they're unavailable. But then they may say, hey, I'm buying you a ticket to China tomorrow. <laughs> you know, like, So there's something for you in that pattern. Usually it's, it's an opportunity to replay a childhood pattern and to get to know yourself differently within that pattern and to, to feel something differently within that pattern. So don't run from the pattern. Get curious about why you're there, what's there for you. I still play out anxious and avoidant dynamics with my partner all the time. That does that mean that I'm always anxious? No, I've actually become more secure in my attachment style than the others. I took the quiz recently again from Diane Poolheller, who's a great um, therapist out there who does attachment work. So many people do, but, and I was like, wow, okay, great. I am more secure. I'm like double times secure than anxious, but my partner brings out that cutie pie little anxious attachment in me and it creates an anxious avoidant um, dynamic between us. Does that mean he's avoidant all the time? No. Does that mean I'm anxious all the time? No. So that dynamic just presents at certain moments of conflict. So it's, it's much more nuanced, I believe, unless again, someone is just like, they're married and they are not available. But if someone feels unavailable in moments, then I would ask yourself, like, what is there an opportunity for me to heal here? Because every time that I'm like in the moment of, oh, my anxiousness is, is rising, there's a conflict rising, my partner's feeling avoidant to me, then there's an opportunity to heal and create safety and security. And we have been doing it so well. Sometimes we feel miserably <laughs> and I want to run and just get in my car and drive off um, <laughs> or be like, what? Why can't we fix this or heal this? But Sometimes we're like, oh, look, interesting. This pattern is showing up. Like, how can we actually create a secure moment between us right now? It's not the sexiest moment, but in those moments, it's honestly like for us, we're in, we're creating the healing. So it's not necessarily about like, um, it does become a bit in the processing and therapizing space because, uh, it creates a clarity. So that is, and, and everybody's different. Everyone has a different approach in those moments. And some, some moments of conflict ask for different things. Some do ask for an expression of anger or rage without blame or shaming someone. And some do ask for, hey, we need to talk about this with clarity. And so it's it's just not a one-size-fits-all. But yeah, I would have a look at that. Um, okay, just a few more here. Oh gosh, there's two more pages. <laughs> How to know if a particular person is the right long-term choice for you. Well, this is a great question because um, I've never been married, so I don't know about choosing someone in that regard, but I do know that you can choose someone every day and that you, um, you know, I, I don't know if you're asking, how do I know if I, sh I should marry someone? But if it's not about marriage, then you get to continue to feel into if the person's a long-term choice for you every day. Um, and not saying every day that you're weighing your odds, like, should I, should I not be with them? But knowing that, like, 
you may have a knowing I want to be with this person for a really long time, but you may not. And some days that knowing may go away and you may be like, what the fuck? Why am I with this person? (laughs) And that's okay too. I think some people have, or at least choose to go, yeah, I have this inner knowing and this person is for me forever and da, 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 da. Can we say that? Do we know that? Don't we know amazing couples who have had that commitment, who have then parted ways? Is the idea of like a long-term, we're going to be together forever commitment uh, feasible or like logical for everyone? I don't know. But I would say, unless you're considering marrying that person like right now and you have to decide, just committing to the now with them every day, committing in your heart and saying like I'm choosing in your heart you know, so that it's not like that you're jumping ahead into the future. Is this my long-term person? I think that's so common and it's so detrimental to the relationship. Of course I did it. And like so much the first six months of the relationship, is this the person? Is this the person? Are we going to stay together? And it's just like, it's so annoying and embarrassing. And, and also it's just like, I mean, if you can suspend that question a little bit and just be with the relationship as it's forming without trying to figure out what it is, I think that that's really healthy and also really good for the relationship. Okay, we're back with some more questions. The first one is, how did you push through fear, feel secure navigating online dating? Well, online dating can be incredible. It can be scary. It can be magical, just like anything in life. It's not just one thing. I often hear people like, oh, online dating sucks. I mean, same kind of like people being like, oh, having a period sucks. Having a period is also incredibly magical. Nothing is just one thing. So online dating can be what you want it to be. And yes, you're coming in contact with so many different people, What I like to say with online dating is that you're not going on a date with people, but you're mainly like interviewing someone to see if you have it, want to have a date with them. So the first time, or even the second time you meet someone, you may still be seeing if they're a person you actually want to date. So I always tell people the first date, um, you maybe on the first date, you want to do a FaceTime and then meet for a quick walk or quick coffee. I would not plan a date. I think sometimes we want to have a date. It sounds glamorous. It sounds sexy. It sounds fun, but we don't know if we want to go on a date with this person yet. So you may be stuck on a date with someone that you really would never even have a conversation with in real life, who you're just gauging off an online profile. So don't do that to yourself. It creates disappointment, grief, sad as it brings up stuff from the past. It's not necessary. Have a walk, have a tea, have a FaceTime. Do not tell all your friends, oh my God, I matched with this incredible person. You're just making and creating something into something big before you even know if you like that person. So you're sort of stacking the odds against you in that regard. Um, I would connect with different people, make sure you don't get attached to one person, the first person that gives you attention. Again, that would be such an indicator of your attachment style, your own areas of wounding. If you just attach to the first person who seems like they're cool and gives you attention, you're actually considering someone to be a life partner. It's not, it's not a small thing. So you want to get to know multiple people. You want to take things slow. There is no urgency. You know, there's no urgency when you're securing yourself, when you're calm, you're stable. If there's urgency, it usually comes from craving. 
So as you're online dating, you can navigate slowly. You can take your time. Um, I would go slow physically so that you don't become attached to someone that you actually don't know. You can then explore sexually, physically with someone when you know them and you feel like there's trust in the relationship and that you really want to explore that with someone. Because if you do it prematurely, you may create attachment bonding to someone that you don't know. Um, so you know, you don't push through fear. You feel what's happening in your body and you listen. And sometimes the body is coming from past trauma, the fear. And sometimes it's actually saying like, it's not the time to go on that date. So you have to, again, learn the the wisdom of discernment in your body. Is that the fear voice or is that an inner knowing that actually don't want to go out with this person? good luck. You know, you can do it. I so much online dating in the past six years before I met my partner who I met at a friend's wedding. Um, but I also did meet some incredible men online dating. Um, I met some incredible men online dating who, uh, I would say I did a lot of healing. (laughs) So good luck with that. How much different do you feel as a woman now versus before your sacred partnership? It's a great question. Um, I mean, I don't feel that much different because I feel pretty secure in who I am. Um, I've spent a lot of time this life following my dreams and healing and expressing myself. So my relationship to who I am, though, it's always shifting, expanding, changing, um, releasing, purging, like shedding. I do feel at the core, I know who I am. So I don't, you know, I do, I'll tell you a few things that I feel like have changed in me. But only recently, because literally the first year I I was wondering if things were going to work out, if we we're going to stay together. I still don't know. Obviously, I'm not a, you know, in the God realm, but I can say I feel much more secure in our relationship now after it's been a year. Um, I've relaxed some in my doingness, so I feel like my ambition has softened a little bit. My kind of busyness has softened a bit. Um, I've had longer, slower mornings. I feel less of a need to prove myself. Um, you know, I do think in the last few years, as I've developed a business, I was also like very aware that like a man could find me on, um, on my Instagram. And that was actually a really big point of, um, internal conflict because I was like, well, I'm, I'm creating work for women primarily, And I don't want to seem too sort of fiery and intense for men and push them away. But I also want to empower women. Um, And I kept going back and forth, like thinking, oh, am I being too masculine? Am I being too forthcoming? Am I being too sexy? Like, and I was like, gosh, I wish my Instagram was just for women so that I could serve the women, but not have the gaze of men. I just knew that any man would actually go look at my Instagram and make judgments based on that. And the truth is, is that my partner did, even though we met at a wedding, we did later connect there. And, you know, he met me at a wedding where I was wearing a pink tulle dress because that was part of the dress code. I would, in the past, I've never worn that. Maybe I would now. It was a point of expansion for me. Um, And I honestly, you know, he, he's not super into like, 
a lot of makeup or, or girliness. And so me in a pink tool dress with pink lipstick and like my hair all up in a certain kind of a formal way, I don't think it really attracted him. But then later when he looked at my Instagram, he saw, oh, she's, she seems pretty like free and she loves nature and she's confident in her body. And so that was, I knew that a man would see that there. So there's been a relief in now like my online um, persona and work being actually not any hidden agendas of finding a man. And I want to just differentiate and be clear about why I'm saying a man, because I was in, um, queer relationships for, you know, up until the last, I guess, like five or six years, but I had a very, um, a very clear knowing, uh, after my last relationship, my last long-term relationship where I lived with someone was with a woman. And um, I knew that in order to heal my own uh, wounding with men and my father, that I needed to be with a man, at least for a while. If not, like that was just maybe I was avoiding that. But I've also been pretty bi and queer since I was quite young. I started kissing girls a lot and well, kissing everybody. <laughs> I think it was also just um, entrenched in my own family's patterns of being um, really into love and sex and affection. So that took me a lot of healing around that. But um, in in the past years of me online dating, I was coming into online dating after having been in queer relationships for the five years prior. So there was this other aspect of like like scary interacting with men there. Um, and I feel like since I've been in, um, in, in this partnership and sacred partnership now, there's been a deep relaxing around just feeling safer to be myself and, um, not feeling, uh, like I have to worry about the gaze of certain men or, you know, do I meet the standards? Um, is someone going to like me when they look at my Instagram profile because I know they're going to go look at it. Um, <laughs> and um, so I felt more secure in myself in that in that aspect of my womanness in relation to men, in, in relation to my work and my public persona and my writing and all of that. It's just expanded and relaxed because I did do a lot of deep work the last few years in terms of building a business, writing a book, um, being on two TV shows. And so in this past year of meeting my partner, I've also just wanted to be less online, more with him. And that's felt really good. So those have just been some of the basic shifts that have happened for me since meeting him. Um, next question. How did you finally feel open to receive this love? How did you know you're ready? It's a great question. Um, I'd finally taken the pressure off. I've finally taken the pressure off. I feel like before him, I was just like on like a one track. Like I've got to meet my person. Where are they? When are they coming? Um, are you them? You know, like that book, um, that children's book, Are You My Mother? I kind of felt like that. Are you my soulmate? Are you my soulmate? Are you my soulmate? Are you my partner? Are you my partner? Are you my king? Are you my person? <laughs> it's just like pretty ridiculous. Um, and before him, I had had 
kind of a series of people who weren't my person and I knew they weren't my person. And I don't mean my forever person. I say that a bit tongue in cheek, but I had reconnected with an old flame who is incredible, passionate connection, um, but sort of toxic. And he was kind of in the narcissistic avoidance space, but brilliant genius artist. And we had connected and, and even though it felt like kind of druggy in my nervous system, I still was like, well, maybe this is it. It wasn't. And then I had reconnected to another past lover. This was Mercury retrograde before I met my partner, actually. And um, this would be in, in November, December 2019, whenever retrograde was happening there. Um, and another lover came back in and he and I were like, gosh, why aren't we together? We have so much fun. Da, da, da. But I was like, but I, I'm looking to settle down soon. I was, I'm just like five years older than him. And then it was just like, no, we're in different places and we had conflict. And so there were like a few different people in a row that were like, Ugh. and then I was just like, you know what? Like, I don't know, something in me sort of graduated from trying to make things work that didn't work. Like trying to, to convince myself, oh, this could work or... And I was just like, no, this isn't it. And it, and when things wouldn't work with someone that I was dating, I would just like totally like take it personally, think it was me, think I could do something better to fix it, cry about it, cry to my friends about it, feel so sad, like so much sadness. And that's just my own childhood wounds of abandonment and rejection and loneliness, being an only child growing up as an infant with au pairs because my parents were flight attendants. It's like this just deep part of me that wanted to be loved and feel safe and held because I just didn't feel that. My, my early childhood was very unstable. So it, emotionally speaking, um, so I just, that stuff kept coming up, you know, and finally it was just kind of like, just feeling that, being with that part of my own healing. So, so much, so much on the healing journey, you know? And I don't think it's about being ready or not ready, but like, um, I had to, I had to let go of what I thought I wanted, what I thought my type was where I thought I wanted to live. And if I would have gone by like, oh, I should make a list. And if they don't check off all the boxes, they're out. Like, I don't believe in that. I don't think that that's, I think that life and God are more nuanced than that. That that seems like pretty much coming from our ego, which is from conditioned mind, not from depth and heart. So I just started listening to what life brought me and life brought me this person. And at first I said, no, and I didn't, I was like, no, no, I don't think it's a match. And he didn't think I was a match. And I think for a while, we both didn't think we were a match, you know, and, um, but we got over those ego things, you know, because at the heart, like we're both in it for kindness and love and healing and depth. And, um, and that's what mattered, you know, maybe not what state we lived in because we lived in different states or, you know, my lifestyle may be a little bit different than his or our age are a little different. And um, we were able to work through those things. I'm so happy. So I had to let go of some of those kind of ego-based um, terms in order to receive, you know. 
had to face thinking like, is this, you know, like, what are people going to think? Oh, he's super private. I can't talk about this publicly. Like, what are people going to think of that? I really did have those thoughts at first, but then I let them go. It's like, okay, now I'm in love and I'm going to fuck. And it's been so gratifying. Yeah. So I hope that that, that I'm at, we have one more question here and then we're going to close out healing from rejection and dashed hopes. Well, from healing from rejection, I would look into the work of Richard Rudd and the Gene Keys and what he says about the rejection wound. Um, and also my friends, Paul and Erica had experienced seven senses. They talk a lot about healing the rejection wound, which is a heart chakra wound in the Gene Key map that you put in. It's like an astrology chart, but it's called Gene Keys. You can see what kind of wounds you have in your heart. So in your heart and your space of receiving love, I have the wound of rejection three times out of five. So my main wounds are rejection. Some people's are shame. Some people's are denial. Some people's are repression. My main ones are rejection. Um, and I receive that willingly as a soul signing up from both of my parents and as an only child and feeling that multiple times throughout this lifetime, that rejection of like, I never want to speak to you again, or I can't have you in my life. Um, you know, really startling to the heart. So healing the pain associated with those moments of rejection has been a journey and it continues to be, those things are still triggered. Um, and I feel like there's so much tenderness and love and, you know, just people say like, you can't, no one can truly reject you unless you reject yourself. And I don't really always understand that concept, but what I do understand is like, it's about other people's ability to receive your love or not. And that's their stuff, not yours. So I think about like little girl, me, she wasn't doing anything wrong. She just, you know, interpreted certain, certain life events, like, you know, as, as deep rejection of her, her essence, her love, her wound. So then that flares up. And I would say if that's part of your healing curriculum, this life, have at it, <laughs> go for it, you know, dive into it. Don't hold back, you know, be all in with that healing because it's big and, um, it requires a lot of courage and vulnerability to, to, to open after being rejected, you know, especially being rejected by people really close to you or, that deeply love you or abandoned as well. It's like, it requires a lot of trust to open again. And, um, and just being with it when it comes up, just being with it, loving her, wrapping her in a blanket, crying with her, feeding her ice cream, tending, if it's a child wound, tending to the little girl in you or the little boy or the, you know, little being in you. Um, and if it's recent rejection, same, like asking for support and love from your community and doing the spiritual practices and the embodied practices that keep the energy moving in your nervous system and in your deep soul. Thank you all for these incredible questions. If by some chance you had a question that didn't get answered today and I missed it, let me know. I'll answer it on IG or in the next one. I'm so happy to engage with you all like this. It feels really good. I love sharing. I love being of service in this way. I'm an artist. I'm a storyteller. I'm a writer. 
I love communicating. I'm a North Node, Gemini. North Node is our karmic destiny. Gemini is the communicator. So my karmic destiny is to communicate. It's in the 12th house, which is the Pisces house, which is to communicate around healing, spirituality, (laughs) mysticism. So here I am doing my duty, doing my dharma, and it gives me great pleasure. Sending you all so much love. See you next week for whatever podcast is coming next. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast. For more, 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 follow me on IG at Alexandra Roxo, and you can get on my mailing list where I send poems, practices, rituals, links to upcoming retreats and events, and all kinds of goodies. And if this podcast has touched your heart, please let us know. Please write us a review, give us a five-star rating, all that. It means a lot to myself and everyone involved. Big, big love, my darling. Have a fabulous day and see you again very soon.